Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. As we now look at what the Bible has to say about the afterlife, about what happens to us after we die. Now, with that in mind, I want to talk to you today about a place that people would rather not talk about. Some Calgarians are open to talking about this place, but most get pretty upset when you bring this place up. They really don't want to go there. They can't imagine ever ending up there, but people do. I want to talk to you today about Edmonton. I'm kidding, I'm sorry, Um, please, no emails, I love you Edmontonians, Uh, I know I pick on you from time to time, but I only do that when I'm really desperate for humor, and given today's subject, um, it's one of those days. Seriously, I want to talk to you about the afterlife about what happens to us after we die. The Bible teaches that moments after we die, we will face an eternal destiny either of indescribable joy or unspeakable loss. As we're going to see in a moment, Jesus described two pathways, one that leads to exaltation, the other that leads to condemnation. The one leads to eternity with God in heaven, the other to eternity without God in a place the Bible refers to as hell. And it is vital that we ask ourselves, which pathway am I on? But before we get into it, would you please stand and join me in dedicating our time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, I'm reminded of the scripture that says we don't always understand why things are the way they are. The subject of hell is one of those. And so I pray that you would help us to understand the truth, but also to understand your heart on this very heavy subject. Despite the emotions that we may feel, Lord, I pray that you would give us all an open mind that you would give us a soft heart and the courage to hear all that you have to say on this. Lord, you know that it brings me no joy to talk about hell. And so I pray for an extra measure of your love and grace and, yes, Lord, courage to speak the truth in love. And, Lord, that I won't get in the way, in any way, of what you want to say and do in the hearts of people today. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Lee Strobel, in his book, Case for Faith, he writes that when he was an atheist, he found his sense of justice enraged by the Christian teaching on hell. He writes, the doctrine of hell seemed like cosmic overkill to me, an automatic and unappealable sentence to an eternity of torture and torment. What kind of God enjoys seeing his creatures writhe forever without hope, beyond redemption, in a torture chamber every bit as ghastly and barbaric as a Nazi concentration camp? Now, if you have similar feelings to those Lee Strobel had before he became a Christ follower, then I want to challenge you to set them aside long enough to examine what the Bible actually says about this subject rather than rejecting the idea of hell outright simply because you don't like the idea of there being a hell. We may hate tsunamis. We may hate hurricanes and earthquakes. But that doesn't mean that we should ignore them or pretend that they don't exist. As I'm going to explain more fully in a few moments, it's important that we understand that the God of the Bible hates hell as much as we do and hates people going there. 
1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4 says this. God our Father wants all people to be saved. Can you see that on the screen? He wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is his heart. And so with that in mind, I want to address three major questions about hell. The first is, is there a hell? And secondly, what is hell like? And then thirdly, why is hell necessary? And I want to give credit to a number of people to whom I'm indebted for their insights on this subject, including Dr. J.P. Moreland, Dr. William Lane Craig, Lee Strobel, and Brian Wilkerson. So let me begin by asking, is there a hell? Well, the Bible teaches that hell is a reality. Even though hell is mentioned only a few times in the Old Testament, it is mentioned many more times in the New Testament. And of particular significance is that Jesus spoke of hell more than any of the writers in the New Testament. For example, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 25. And as you're doing that, I'm just going to give a little background to the events of this chapter. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. The Bible teaches that when we die, our existence doesn't end at the grave the way some people believe nor are we reincarnated into another life form. No, it says here that man is destined to die once. And after that, we are very conscious and we meet our maker and we face his judgment. And here in Matthew 25, Jesus describes the day of judgment like this. In verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Now go down to verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Now look down to verse 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. In this passage, Jesus says a day is coming when every person will stand before holy God and he will separate people one from another. Those of his, on his right who are described as faithful followers are welcomed into heaven. And those on the left who are described as selfish, self-centered, people who have no interest in God or in following Him or doing what He calls us to do, they're sent away to eternal punishment. Now, we don't have time to read many other passages in which Jesus speaks to this subject, but He essentially says the same thing in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, and Matthew 21, verse 1. In all these passages and others, Jesus clearly taught that hell is a reality. For example, in Luke chapter 12, Jesus said this, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I, will show, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after your body has been killed has the authority 
to throw you into hell. Folks, there is no disputing the fact that Jesus believed that there was both a heaven and a hell. The idea of the universalist that all people will eventually end up in heaven regardless of the decisions they make in life is a very comforting thought. In fact, let me be very clear. No true Christian should ever delight in telling people that they are destined to hell. There is something very wrong when preachers and televangelists, often with a smug, self-righteous spirit, seem to gloat and take great pleasure telling people that they are headed for hell. No, our heart should break. Tears should come to our eyes every time we talk about the reality of hell and the possibility of people heading there. But having said that, it would be nice to believe, as some do, that hell is a type of three-star motel with no room service and a lumpy bed. But once patrons see the luxury five-star high-rises along the beach of heaven, they will see what they're missing and they will move. It's a, it's, a, it's a very appealing thought that everyone will one day end up in heaven. I wish it were true. Seriously, I do. I do not wish for anyone to end up in hell. I've dedicated my entire life to do all I can with the help of God to somehow influence, to challenge, and encourage people to avoid hell by embracing Jesus Christ. The problem is, you have to reject not only the Bible, but you have to reject Jesus himself and what he taught to conclude everyone's going to end up in heaven one day regardless of their choices in this life. The Bible clearly indicates that hell is a reality. So given that hell is a reality, what is it like? Well, first of all, hell is a real place. Now, when, I, when we say that hell is a real place, we're saying that it is a real destination, a real part of the universe, but that exists in another dimension in the same way that heaven exists in another dimension. And so we need to remember when, when biblical writers talk about heaven or hell, they're trying to describe for us things in another dimension that we're totally unfamiliar with. And, and will therefore often, uh, these writers will often use metaphors or figures of speech to describe heaven and hell. But hell itself is a real place, a real destination. But secondly, hell is separation from God. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1, verse 9 describes hell as being shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. You see, the thing which makes heaven heaven is the fact that God will be there. His presence will be there. In the same way, the thing that makes hell hell is the fact that God's presence will not be there. The Bible describes heaven as a place of perfect love, perfect belonging, a place of true peace and rest. Well, hell will be the exact opposite of that, a place of loneliness, isolation, pride, selfishness, and greed. There will be no rest there, no relief from regret and resentment. Can you imagine the hopelessness of that to where God's presence is not? We take his presence for granted in this life, friends. We have no concept of what life or existence would be like without his presence. Revelation 9.1 describes hell as a bottomless pit. In other words, in hell you will feel like you are falling further and further away from all that is good, all that is right, and all that is loving with no hope of return. Hell is separation from God. Thirdly, hell is separation from others. 
Brian Warner, leader of the heavy metal band called Marilyn Manson. He indicated that he's confident he's going to end up in hell when he dies. Laughing, he said this, I'm going to say hell would probably be more comfortable, a more comfortable place for me because everyone I know would be there and I wouldn't really be allowed to do anything in heaven that would be any fun. Now, sadly, many people have a similar view of hell. They have this idea that, that hell is going to be a fun place filled with parties and with orgies and good times with their drinking buddies. Well, if that thought has crossed your mind, cross it out real quick because there's no biblical basis for it. It may be part of someone's imagination, but it's not how the Bible describes it. There is no community in hell. It is a place of aloneness. In Matthew 25, 11, Jesus likens heaven to that of a wedding banquet. A wedding is a, a place, if you think about it, it's a, it's a picture of community filled with joy and laughter. Those who are in hell are pictured as being shut out from the banquet hall, having no community, joy, or laughter. People who end up in hell are proud, arrogant, self-centered, concerned only with their own interests. And if you think about it, it is precisely these qualities which create conflict between people. It is these qualities which divide people, which kill community. Hell is separation from others. Fourthly, hell is a place of anguish. Matthew 8, 12 says, In hell there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping is what you do when you're feeling hopeless or sad. But what about gnashing of teeth? Some people believe this means people are gnashing their teeth from pain and that hell, therefore, is a place of constant physical pain. But let me ask you, when you hit your thumb with a hammer, what sound do you make? Well, most normal people just sort of yell out, ow! Now, if you're a tough guy, you'll probably go, mm! But regardless, you don't gnash your teeth when you're in pain. So when do you gnash your teeth? Well, let me explain it to you with an example. You missed your son's hockey game many times this past year. Even though each time you promised you would be there. And today, you promise yet again, you will be there to attend his final game. Unfortunately, and as usual, you fail to exercise rigor in ending your meeting at work on time. And as you look at your watch, you realize to your horror, even if you hit every green light and went twice the posted speed limit, you will miss over half of your son's game. And so there you are driving like an out-of-control emergency vehicle, weaving in and out of traffic, and wouldn't you know it, you get pulled over by the police. Your blood pressure is now 200 over 110, which I think is on the high side. And you know you will now miss your son's entire game yet again. And as you wait for the police to write you up, you repeatedly hit your hands or perhaps your head against the steering wheel in front of you. And you are gritting your teeth and saying to yourself, Huh, I can't believe I got myself into this situation again. Why, why, why do I keep doing this? Huh. Or perhaps, instead of blaming yourself, you do what so many other people do, and that is deflect their responsibility and blame the police. You take your anger out on them for being the cause of you missing your son's game. 
But all that to say, you don't gnash your teeth when you're in physical pain. You gnash your teeth when you're in emotional pain. Bill Hybels says you gnash your teeth when you are filled with regret for your own actions or when you're angry at either yourself or at someone else. Well, in the same way, people who have ignored God or stubbornly resisted God all of their lives will either be full of anger and regret at themselves, gnashing their teeth and saying, I blew it, I blew it, I knew better. Jesus is the Son of God. I had the opportunity, but I was too proud, I was too self-willed, I rejected him. Or... More likely, they will be just full of anger at God, gnashing their teeth at Him, blaming Him, accusing Him, cursing Him for what has happened to them. But make no mistake, hell is a place of anguish. Fifthly, hell is eternal. In Matthew 18.8, Jesus talks about eternal fire. Hebrews 6.2 talks about hell being a place of eternal judgment. Now there are those who believe that even though people will be sent to hell, that they're going to be destroyed or annihilated sometime after arriving in hell. They point to passages like Psalm 37 which says, The wicked will be no more. And yet there are numerous passages that clearly articulate that hell is eternal including the parables Jesus gave in Matthew 13, 22, and 25, which, excuse me, I've already referred to. Hebrews 6, 2 talks about hell being a place of eternal judgment. In Matthew 25, verse 46, Jesus said, and we referred to this earlier, but he said this, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Just leave that slide up for a minute. You notice the word eternal punishment and then the word eternal life. The eternal is used for both those words. And annihilationists believe that eternal punishment there means annihilation, of course. However, the same Greek word that's used for eternal punishment is the same word that's used for eternal life, which means if we believe... This is saying that we're going to be annihilated in hell. Well, then we must also believe we're going to be annihilated in heaven, which, of course, is not the case at all. Now, annihilationists also refer to passages like Jude 7, where hell is described as an eternal or unquenchable fire. And they say if hell is a place of eternal fire, then it only makes sense that those who go there would be consumed or annihilated by the flames. And yet Dr. Moreland says, we know the reference to flames is figurative because if you take it literally, it makes no sense in relation to other scriptures that talk about hell. For example, the Bible describes hell as a place of utter darkness, complete darkness. The Bible also describes hell as a lake of fire, a place of unquenchable fire. So how can that be? Flames would light up the darkness. In Revelation 20, verse 14, we read this, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now we know that Hades is a realm like heaven, which can't be burnt. Or of course, how do you burn death? So you see, it's pretty evident the lake of fire is meant to stand for judgment and not a place of literal burning. And so people are not annihilated in hell. But make no mistake, even though hell is eternal, it is not a place of everlasting torture. And it is critical that we understand this. God isn't like a spoiled child who says to people, look, my rules are my rules, and if I don't get my way and you don't obey, then I'm going to make you pay. I'm going to torture you forever. 
That does not describe the character of the God of the Bible. That is not his heart. He takes no pleasure in any of this. Yes, hell is punishment that says you ignored or denied God, refused to regularly live out his purpose for you. The only alternative is to sentence you away for all of eternity. But it is not a torture chamber. What is it then? It is the natural consequence of a life that has been lived in a certain direction. Finally, hell is a place of utter heartbreak. Even though hell may not be an eternal torture chamber, the Bible makes it clear that hell is the last place that you'll want to end up at. Dr. Moreland reminds us that any figure of speech in the Bible has a literal point. What is figurative is the burning flame. What is literal is that this is a place of utter anguish and sadness. It is a place of no relief from self-centeredness, from self-loathing, from resentment, misery, or boredom. It is a loss of everything, and it is the worst possible situation that could ever happen to a person. The Bible also uses the word Gehenna to describe hell. Gehenna was a deep valley outside of Jerusalem, which at the time served as a huge smoldering dump. It was a place where worthless things were thrown. And so when the Bible uses the word Gehenna to describe hell, it is saying that people in hell will be consciously aware that now and for all eternity, God has judged them to have no value. His eye is no longer on them. His purpose for them is gone. It is wiped out. His love and his protection are removed. Can you imagine the helplessness and hopelessness of that? Folks, don't ever buy into the deception of those who would have us believe that hell is going to be a great place to be. It is an awful destination. And so that is a biblical description of what hell is. Which leaves us with perhaps the greatest question many people have. And that is, why is hell necessary? Some people wonder, how can a loving God send children to hell? Well, there's no indication of the Bible that there will be children in hell. In fact, Jesus often took children, placed them on his lap, and used them to describe the nature and the character and the kind of heart of those who are part of his eternal kingdom. Furthermore, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we've got the story of the death of a child that was conceived in an adulterous relationship between King David and Bathsheba. And referring to that child, David said, I will go to him, but he will not return to me indicating that this child was in heaven and that he, King David, would join him one day. Still others wonder, how could God condemn people to hell who have never heard of Jesus? Well, I gave a complete answer to that question in a sermon entitled, What About Those Who Have Never Heard of Jesus? Which is part of the Why Believe series. I encourage you to get it, to get the response to that. But let me just say this. First of all, be assured that God will judge each person uniquely and fairly. And secondly, no one is going to hell because of a lack of knowledge or understanding or because of a low IQ or a mental deficiency. Now, to know why I say that, you'll have to read Romans chapter 1 and understand that chapter and also listen to the sermon that I just referenced a moment ago. 
So let's get back now to the original question. Why is hell necessary? Well, the short answer is this. Because God's justice requires it and because his love requires it. Let me unpack that a little more. First of all, hell is necessary because God's justice requires it. God is just. And when he sees evil and injustice in the world, he just can't turn a blind eye to it. It would be contrary to his very nature to do so. Now the Bible says that we're made in God's image, which means we're wired up with God's sense of justice. So to give you a sense of that, let me ask you, if your husband or best friend was murdered by a terrorist, how would you feel toward that terrorist? Wouldn't there be something inside of you screaming that an injustice has been done and that this murderer needs to pay for his or her crime? Or let me ask you this. How would you feel if our justice system said to the person who sexually abused your child for years, well, you know, you grew up in a very dysfunctional home. You lived under some pretty bad living conditions. And so tell you what, instead of sentencing you to prison, if you promise to behave yourself from now on, I'm going to let you go. Just don't do it again, okay? How would you feel about that? Isn't there something inside of you that would be enraged by that miscarriage of justice? Well, you see, that sense of justice raging inside of you is actually a reflection of the justice of God. It's the part of you that's created in his image. God's very nature will not allow him to say, well, Hitler, you murdered all kinds of people, yes, but I understand that you're simply a product of your environment. I'm all forgiving, so come on into heaven. I mean, how would we feel about God if he was like that? That's not a loving God at all. Yale theologian Maroslav Wolf, who witnessed violence and death firsthand in the Balkans, he says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception, that God would not be worthy of worship. In short, because of his love for his creation, God is angry at evil and injustice and anything else bent on destroying his creation. No different than you would be angry at anything or anyone bent on hurting or destroying your loved ones. And even though our human justice systems may not always make correct judgments, God promises to make all injustices right in his time and his way we can trust him uh, to, in this particular matter now I'm sure we understand that in principle and in principle we understand perhaps why hell is necessary I mean we can appreciate why the murderers and the rapists and the terrorists and the child molesters those folks they deserve hell The problem is, most of us think because we haven't done any of these horrible crimes, we don't deserve to go to hell. And yet, why do we think that God would ignore lying, cheating, sexual sins, greed, and a host of other wrongs most of us have committed at one time or another? From our perspective, for example, murder seems so much greater it seems like so much of a greater crime than greed. And yet, as I've pointed out so many times down through the years, how many thousands, hundreds of thousands of people and children have died of malnutrition and hunger because of greed in our world? 
And folks, if we're in a position to be more generous and we're not because we simply want more for ourselves, we're part of that spirit of greed. We're part of that crowd. Most people agree the terrorists who masterminded 9-11 are deserving of hell. And yet, what about all the people along the way who likely for a little money under the table, perhaps, looked the other way or lied or did some other indiscretion to aid the terrorists? Oh, they probably had no idea what was going on and how their little sin would impact the grand scheme of things. To them, it was just a little lie. It was just a little deliberate oversight. Yet in the end, it played a pivotal role in the tragedy of 9-11. Or how about this? How many people have died, either physically or emotionally, because someone flat out lied, or someone didn't keep their word, or because someone cheated on their vows? You see, sin is sin. And every sin, regardless of how insignificant we may think it is, not only hurts us, but it can hurt others. In fact, it can be incredibly destructive. The Bible says we all, folks, we all have sinned. We all fall short of the glory of God. We've all said no to God. We're all guilty before Him. And unless our sinful condition is paid for, the wrath of God, that's what the Scriptures tell us in Romans 1, the wrath of God remains on us. And our destiny is to be forever separated from God. Now again, God loves us. Doesn't want us to be separated from Him. And yet, his justice demands that our sins be paid for. And so God does an amazing thing. Romans 5.8 describes it this way. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in a condemned state, while we were still headed for hell, Christ died for us. Out of love for us, he sends his one and only son to die on a cross in our place to pay for our sins. That's what grace is. It's not deserved. It's unmerited favor. It's the only way. Do you understand this, folks? It's the only way that God could satisfy his justice, stay true to his just nature, and yet provide a way for us to have a second chance to be set free. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever, whoever believes in Him shall not perish, shall not end up in hell but have everlasting life. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, however great our sins may be, however much we feel unworthy before God, if we confess them, He is faithful. And he is just. And because of what Christ did on the cross, he will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, whatever it is. That's the amazing offer that God makes to us, every one of us. If we by faith 
accept God's offer of forgiveness and grace through Jesus Christ, surrender our life to him and, and follow him as Lord, the trajectory of our eternity will change from hell to heaven. On the other hand, if we continue to ignore or reject God, we just continue, excuse me, we continue to just go our own way. Then God's perfect justice has no choice but to leave us in our sin and in our lost condition and we will receive what we have asked for. A life without God. And so first of all, hell is a necessity because God's justice requires it. And secondly, health, hell is necessary because God's love requires it. Brian Wilkerson says, suppose that you're an earthly parent and your child decides he wants nothing to do with you and leaves home for the West Coast. What are your options? Well, one is you can send him letters expressing your love. You can send money, perhaps, to kind of help him along. You can even go to the West Coast, track him down, plead with him to come home, and letting him know that you love him. But if you love him, there is one thing that you cannot do. You can't bind him hand and foot, drag him home, and chain him to his bed for the rest of his life. Well, I suppose you could do that. But, but let's face it. That's not love. That's kidnapping. That's imprisonment. And God doesn't work that way. Those of you guys who have ever pursued a woman, I'm assuming there's a few of you here, um, who have ever pursued a woman, you know you can't force her to love you. Unless she loves you back on her own free will, it just isn't love. Now you see, this understanding of love that I've just described is again something that God has given to us when he made us in his image. It describes his love for us and the kind of friendship he wants to have with us. You see, he is love. And he wants us to return his love freely from the heart. And so he gives us the freedom to love him back or to ignore him and reject him. But here's the thing. If we ignore or reject him, what is he to do? What is he to do? Well, Romans chapter 1 gives us a hint. Turn to Romans 1 for a minute. In this chapter, we're given a description of the moral decline of man and how man decided to worship or love the things God made rather than worship or love God himself, which in time grew into all kinds of depraved thinking and disgusting perversions. And after some time, it says in verse 24, after some time of pursuing man, of trying to reveal himself to man, and man consistently rejecting God and worshiping the things that God made, in verse 24 it says, God gave them over to sexual impurity. Go down to verse 26. It says, and God gave them over to shameful lusts. Go down to verse 28. It says, and God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they did what ought not to be done. Did you notice that three times it says here that God gave them over? Some of the saddest words in the New Testament, it means to hand over control and responsibility. You know, friend, you can say to God either directly or indirectly through the decisions that you make in life, I don't want you in my life. I don't want to follow you. Just leave me alone. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. 
And even though God, because of his incredible love for you, will continue to pursue you and attempt to get your attention, there will come a time when God will say what he said here. He will say, okay. All right. And he will leave you alone. He will turn you over to your own wishes. And this, the Bible calls hell. God gave them over. He let them go in the direction that they wanted to go. The answer then to the question, why would a loving God send people to hell? In the strictest sense is this, because that is the destination they have chosen all along. Now please understand, I don't believe most people consciously choose hell. But they do choose, and to, they do choose to ignore God and to, or to reject God again and again. And by doing that, they end up going in the direction away from God. Hell is a logical consequence of a life lived separate from God. Dr. D.A. Carson put it this way, hell is not a place where people are consigned because they were pretty good folks, but they just didn't believe the right stuff. No, he says, they're consigned there first and foremost because they defy their maker and want to be at the center of their own universe. You see, it's not that God hasn't provided every possible means for us to be with him in heaven and to avoid hell. It's just that some get their back up and they're set on being the center of their own universe, living life their way, and they essentially say, forget it. I'm not putting my life and my future into the hands of anyone, including God. John Ortberg says they take a big step around the cross and they continue to walk the broad road that leads to a Christless eternity. And folks, that is why it is so upsetting when I hear people accusing God of arbitrarily casting people into hell because in the final analysis, God really doesn't cast people into hell. People put themselves into hell. Every day, they are set on being the center of the universe to living life their way. They come to the cross, which could save them from hell, and they take a big left turn, and they say, no thanks, and defiantly keep marching on a road that leads away from God and straight toward hell. But here's the thing. What matters most right now is not what other people are or aren't doing with Jesus. The most important question right now is, what are you doing with Jesus? Some of you here have bumped into the truth of the cross of Christ practically in every weekend service. Or maybe you've bumped into the truth of the cross through the life of a Christian at work or at school or in your neighborhood. Others of you have bumped into the cross through the wonder of God's creation or the wonder of the birth of a child or some other miraculous or life-changing event. See it for what it is. God is reaching out to you. He's trying to get your attention. The question is, are you open to him at all? Or are you just going to continue to resist him? Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to wrap up with two implications of what we've learned today. 
First, a word to those of us who are followers of Christ. I want to remind us all about the stakes that we're dealing with here. When it's all said and done, every person on this planet is going to end up in one of two places. You know where you're going to be because you've put your trust in Christ and you're a faithful friend of Jesus. But what about the people around you who are headed for a Christless eternity? As I indicated last week, how burdened is your heart for God's spiritually lost children? How earnestly are you praying for them? Reaching out to them in love? Folks, there's no higher calling. There is no greater cause to give your life to. Everything else you pursue in life is going to burn up. The only thing that we can take with us to heaven is our heart, faith, and people. That's why we're still here and not in heaven. We've got to get this, folks. Fellow believers, church, we've got to get this and understand this. If you sense God calling you to take a renewed step, to pray for it, to let God use you to introduce someone to Jesus. I'm just going to, to, to invite you in a moment to express that in a very tangible way by getting out of your seat and coming here to the altar as a way of just solidifying, deepening your commitment to this most important cause. But before you come, I want to address those who really aren't sure where you'd be moments after you die. My intent is not to scare anyone with hell or bribe anyone with heaven or to pressure anyone into making a decision that's not sincere. But the fact is you are staring at the cross of Christ right now and you have a decision to make. What will you do with Jesus and his offer of eternal life through faith in him? Will you continue to trust in your own theories? Will you continue to trust in your own goodness and your own good works to get you to heaven? Or will you put your trust in Jesus and his word, the scriptures, and what it says about the way to heaven? Jesus said, I am the way the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He offers that to you as a free gift. Will you receive it? Will you kneel at the cross? Or will you once again walk around the cross? Walk out the door and say, you know, I'll do that another time. You know, you don't need to fear. You don't need to wonder about what's going to happen to you moments after you die. You can know for sure what your eternal destiny will be. Jesus made it possible. All you need to do is turn to him in repentance and faith. Turning to him means you want to start building a friendship with him. Repentance means admitting to God that you're a sinner who needs to be forgiven and changed from the inside out. Putting your faith in Jesus is putting your trust in him that you believe he died on the cross and that he rose again and that he is the truth, that he is the way to heaven and he's the very source of the good life here on earth. If you feel something inside of you tugging at your heart right now, that's God reaching out to you by his spirit. He's whispering, come home, son. Come home, daughter. I died to set you free. Come home. It's going to take humility and courage, but I'm going to invite you also to get up and make your way up here just as you are and embrace his love and grace by faith. And so anyone who is right now sensing God calling you just to make your way up here for any of the reasons I've just referred to, because you want to go deeper in your walk with God and being used of him to introduce other to people, people that are on your heart that you're burdened with, you want to pray for, you make your way up right now. Just come on right now. Come on up here. Those of you 
at one of our regional campuses. I invite you to get up and make your way to the front of the room that you're meeting in right now. I'm going to wait for just a few moments. But if Jesus is calling out to you and saying, come home, come. Come right now. Do not let your concern about what other people think prevent you from embracing Christ today. Leading you to go around the cross again. No. No. It's going to ask us all to stand. Just allow people that might want to get by you to come forward. Just let them by you. I'm going to ask you to pray for those who are coming forward. I'm going to ask pastors and prayer partners and small group leaders and so forth, make your way up here and just be an encouragement to those who have come forward. I realize there's more than one reason why you've come forward, but those of you who have come forward to become followers of Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to join me in a prayer right now. You can pray it out loud. In fact, I'm going to ask all of us to pray this prayer and may it truly be reflection of what's happening in our heart. Many of you have prayed this prayer in the past, but I hope it wasn't just a prayer. And if it was just a prayer somewhere in your past, and you recognize that you have not been living all out for Jesus, in fact, you even wonder whether you really know him, then I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with new meaning. And may this be the day in which you truly become a friend of Jesus. So let's pray it together out loud. Just pray it after me. Heavenly Father, thank you for pursuing me all of my life and for opening up my spiritual eyes today. I want to be your friend, not only in this life, but forever in heaven. I know that heaven's a perfect place and I'm not. So please forgive me of my sins and make me clean through the shed blood of Jesus so that I might be your child. Thank you, Jesus, for dying in my place and making it possible not only for me to be forgiven, but also to live in freedom and victory in this life through you. As you gave your life for me, I now give my life to you in faith. Accept you as my Savior and Lord. Help me now to know you more and to follow you faithfully with other believers. For I pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's give God the glory. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy and your love, Lord Jesus. Those of you who... uh, Pray that prayer for the first time. There are prayer partners, there are pastors here who would just love to meet you briefly just so we can encourage you and walk with you as you carry on. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. 
In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.